Are you ready to invest in yourself today? Welcome to the Wealth Builders Podcast. Where investment leader Billy Epperhart teaches you how to build wealth through applied biblical wisdom. Scripture says in Deuteronomy 8.18, Remember the Lord, your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. At Wealth Builders, our goal is to teach you how to build wealth through applied biblical wisdom in your finances, your business, and your investments. Now, let's join Billy Epperhart. Hello and welcome to the Wealth Builders Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Epperhart. And uh, remember, we're doing this podcast to really empower you with what I call practical ways to make a kingdom impact. That's a kingdom of God impact where you are in the world. And so we, we like to talk about making sense of making money for making a difference. And we like to do it all in about 15 minutes during these podcasts. So you really learn how to combine faith and finance for a balanced and fruitful life. We want you to succeed and to do that God's way. So if you like notes for the podcast, I've been sharing this in the last several podcasts, make sure you go to wealthbuilders.org front slash shop wealthbuilders, one word, wealthbuilders.org, front slash shop, and you can get your free download uh, for this particular episode. You can get some notes for that. And so in addition, some of you have wrote in and asked about getting more information. And so we do have a website, wbuniversity.online, wbuniversity.online. You can go to, and there uh, we have all kinds of courses that you can take and study. And of course, all of our courses are done uh, in a Christian mindset based on the Bible, biblical-based teachings that we have on there, but they're very, very practical as well. And you can get an annual subscription for $2.99. So today, I want to continue to talk about some things and maybe answer a couple of more questions, but I want to mention just a couple of things. We've been kind of having a theme in the last several podcast. And one of the things that I want to talk about a little bit today is having a historical perspective, for example, on the financial markets and understanding where we are. And I've said in several of these podcasts already that the reason we refer to the stock market and more specifically to the S&P 500, which are the 500 largest stocks in what we call the S&P 500, it's like an index of those top largest stocks that are trading in the stock market. The reason that we talk about that is because it really acts as an indicator or to maybe get a little more specific like a thermometer. If you're going to, you know, when I was a kid, my mother would, we had those old mercury thermometers and they would stick it in your mouth under your tongue or when you went to the doctor and they would shake it so it would go back down and they'd put it in your mouth. Some of you may remember that. And then they would hold it up and read it, you know, and the average temperature is supposed to be, what, 98.6. And so, you know, if you had, you know, a temperature of 101 or something, or God forbid some would get as high as 104 or 5, then they knew that you had a fever or in the case of 104, really bad fever, right? So it was an indicator. And so when, we, when we're talking about the stock market, we're not talking about, we're not just teaching on the stock market. We're talking about really the financial markets as a whole. And I did a podcast, several podcasts back, where I really talked more about the everything bubble. But one of the, and I alluded to 
a couple of these, but I want to talk about some of the biggest uh, bubbles of all times. And these are crashes and bubbles that happen. In our podcast, I didn't give you any in-depth information, but I mentioned in the first one that's mentioned that we know of in modern financial history was the tulip mania. And that was really about tulip bulbs. And they became valuable back in from about in the early to mid 1600s. Actually, the tulip mania ran from 1634 to 1637. And (laughs) what was amazing about that bubble is that some of those bulbs became so valuable that, that some people would trade all of their land and their entire life savings just to buy one or two bulbs. And so one of the things that I mentioned, and I want to encourage you here as I go through this today, is always remember when you're looking at value, remember, think of the phrase I use, intrinsic value. What is the intrinsic value of what something is worth? So I've mentioned this, but one way to know is you can compare historically, let's say, the value of something, some kind of commodity or some other asset that you're purchasing and compare it to the price of gold. So if you were to take a three-bedroom, a two-bath home, for example, and you were to go back 100 years and see what that house cost compared to one ounce of gold. So how many ounces of gold would it take to buy a home, let's say 100 years ago, that is the same amount of ounces of gold it should take today to buy the same home or a similar home that's like that. So for example, a three-bedroom, two-bath home today should go for about, for example, about 200 ounces of gold. Some markets, it's going to be a lot less than that. Some markets, it's going to be a lot more than that, but it's usually the median that you're looking for. What that median number is should be around 200 ounces of gold. And we're in markets today, if we're not careful, really almost across the board where it's higher than that, that means even real estates can get in a bubble. So the tulip mania, the reason I use the term intrinsic value, because these bulbs weren't really that intrinsically valuable. Now, there was a degree of rarity to them, which always supply and demand always makes prices go up if the supply is a lot lower than the demand. And so the tulip bulb mania, which was known in the early 1600, and if you looked at what happened in 1634, they started at what everyone would call uh, the normal price for what tulips should be selling for. There was what we call a hockey stick curve, where literally the curve went straight up right at the end of 1636, about two years later then 1634, and then within less than uh, two months, the entire bottom, it went below, well below where it started in 1634. Another bubble was the South Sea bubble that was from 1711 to 1720, and the South Sea Company, it was an international trading company. It was based in the U.K., And they had special trading rights that were in South America in those days known as the South Seas. Basically, uh, if you go back and look at it, in about the beginning of 1720, the South Sea Company shares began to skyrocket. And in the same year, they went up because everybody thought they were going to discover something new. International trade and exploration was happening They were going to, you know, they were all of a sudden going to bring something back that was special. 
And what happened was in one year, not in two years or three years, in one year, it skyrocketed and went up. And in the same year, the bottom fell out and it came back to below where the end of it was actually below where it had started at its lowest point. And part of that is, is that the shares began to soar because rumors really embellished the true value of the company. And people just kind of went on that news. And of course, obviously the bubble popped. And um, there were, of course, new authors coming out. I'll just say that in the UK at that time, like Thomas Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels. And uh, there was just a lot of things that were going on during that time. And so some famous people like Thomas Swift and Isaac Newton all invested. And so people kind of followed their lead and the thing fell like a lead balloon, so to speak in one year's time. Another one was the Mississippi bubble in 1715. This one actually occurred in France. And uh, basically this particular company was started by a man named, and he was a Scottish economist whose name was John Law. And basically he was selling paper assets, we call that stock today, of the creation of a national bank that was actually backed in deposits by gold and silver. So we all would think that would be okay. But what happened was there had never been anything like this. This economist came up with it. And so there basically, once again, there became too much demand. In other words, people were just throwing money at it. And there was a major inflationary bubble that happened in this particular national bank's paper money. And it literally plunged in value because you had way more money buying then you had the intrinsic value backing it up, meaning the intrinsic value of gold and silver backing it up. Really, it was one of France's worst economic crises ever. And then again, in the UK, number four is the railroad bubble happened in the 1840s. And once again, this was a, the railroads and the railroad itself was a new innovation strategy that had come up, uh, meaning that they had never had transportation like this connecting cities, kind of like we've had in the internet, which I'll talk about in a minute. But that railroad bubble happened in the 1840s, and it's when the railways were really first invented. And honestly, think about it. If the only way you can get anywhere was on horseback or wagon, and all of a sudden you have a railroad, you know, trains that are running that you can get quickly. Well, people thought that, you know, from one point to the other, people thought that there was going to be this unbridled success and railroad stocks just started going up like crazy. It really started in about 1830, and it really peaked in about 1845 or 1846. This was the longer one, and this really, the, what was peaking was the index of British railway shares, and in about 1849, 48, 49, uh, boy, it began to drop. It actually dropped in about 47, 48, 49, and by the, by the time 1850, uh, basically, it was worth nothing. And then here in America, the fifth bubble was the Wall Street crash we had in 1929. I'll talk about that in a second, uh, but meaning I'll bring out some points, some other points there when I talk about bubbles in general. But that was what we call here in the U.S. the stock market crash of 1929, where we saw we actually lost 89% of the stock market's value. And it actually all happened, if you can believe this, it was actually the worst modern day stock market crash and bubble in history. 
I mean, it came down in a hurry. And so actually it led to the Great Depression and all of the things there that then in, in real estate, of course, if you know your history, real estate was incredibly negatively affected there. And really, because it was a depression, it also affected even rental prices went down. And that's usually the only time they go down. Now, there's others, and I'll just end with what we call the dot-com bubble in 2000. And the reason I'm going to end with this one here in time together is because really the dot-com bubble, which was really the internet bubble, was just like the railway bubble in the UK in 1840. And so in the same way that it happened with railroads, it came about because investors, and most of the time, and additionally, there were speculators that were looking to latch on to the, what the next big thing that was happening in the economy, that we're now in a new economy. And many of these dot-com stocks who, that had no earnings, they, in fact, in some, some cases, they didn't even have a viable business model, much less having any earnings. And people, we were pouring millions of dollars. And one of those companies that never came back out was Pets.com, for example. There were many others. I mean, I remember back, I remember Exodus Communications in those days, but there were a lot of them. And what happened was, of course, when we realized that all this money had gone into these stocks and there was no really intrinsic value, we ran into the internet bubble 99 into 2000. We, of course, once again went into a recessionary period. So one of the things, I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but I'm trying to give you some perspective. And people ask me, well, Billy, you know, why do you think we're in an everything bubble? Well, here's, here's just some indicators you can use to spot the next crash. And this is probably worth the price of the whole ticket when I give you this, is one of the things is you look for rapid price movement. So if we're going to use what's been happening, for example, in the S&P 500, that index we keep talking about, is that if you look how fast it came back up once it went down, of course, just going through the recent COVID thing, and then you see it continue to go up, or even stocks like Tesla that have gone up and down have rapid price movements, or the rapid price movements that you see today in Bitcoin. And so, you know, one of the things you look for is when a major market has rallied by a huge amount in a relatively short span of time, you have to watch that. And that's kind of where we're at now. Mac, that's not kind of where we're at. That's where we're at. So one is rapid price movements, and we can check that box. The second one is what I call leverage and debt. Now, there's a little more to it than just leverage and debt, but most bubbles that are created have relied on some kind of leverage or debt to sustain higher prices. Say, Billy, well, tell me what you mean. Well, for example, now I'm for, for example, democratizing finance for all, but what happens is, is when you have something like a Robin Hood, you have a lot more smaller investors that can equal bigger investors. And I'm not criticizing. I'm saying you need to be aware of this. What happens is you get a lot more money flowing in towards certain assets that may or may not have intrinsic value. So what happens is, in fact, if I, I can show you, and I mentioned, and you can get from the notes, you can go to wealthbuilders.org and get the notes on this. You can get the slide that I was using in the podcast that showed as interest rates have gone down, that means that money itself, the ability to borrow money, is so much cheaper today. So where's that money going? Some of that money is going toward financial assets, meaning people are borrowing money, they're getting money cheaper, and they're using that borrowed money and putting it into financial assets. 
Well, you say, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that. But what happens is now you have a whole lot more money in the market and you have too much money chasing too few assets or assets that are not able to hold up from a fundamental intrinsic reason to hold up. I mean, we saw it in the financial crisis of 2007 and eight. Right. We had people that were getting what we call no doc, uh, no proof of income type loans, buying real estate. So real estate prices went up. Kind of sounds like today with the low interest rates where real estate keeps continues to go up. And so one of the things that you have to really realize and protect yourself from is remember leverage and debt. So rapid price movements, leverage and debt. And then the third one that I like to use is people start talking. It's been said many times that if you look back at the roaring 20s before the 1929 stock market crash, that even the shoe shiners they were telling people which stocks to buy. It happened the same thing in the dot-com bubble. So when you find your neighbors and everybody else talking about things, you have to be careful because too much money can end up going to one asset or gravitating. And when that happens, you get these high price per earning per share. You get other things that get inflated, such as the price of homes, because there's a lot of money chasing real estate. The same thing happens. So I just want to encourage you today to be to use wisdom and use godly wisdom in what you want. You know, the Bible says about the sons of Issachar that they were able to discern the times. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and tells us verses 1 through 10, there's a time for different things. And right now, I think it's a time to be discerning and understanding of the times that we're in and to be aware of how you're investing and what you're doing. So, hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I've gone a tad long, I think, in this one. I'm not sure, but I have. But I know it's a lot of information. But remember, you can subscribe, like, or follow us on the Wealth Builders Podcast, and we're on all the platforms out there. That'll help you. If you want to get free blogs, you can go to wealthbuilders.org. If you want to submit questions about, because I've talked a lot about bubbles and stock market in this particular podcast, you can go to info at wealthbuilders.org and submit your questions. We encourage your questions because I'll come on here through this time and make sure that we cover the questions that you have sent in. So, I'll see you back here on another podcast. Bye-bye. We hope you learned something of lasting value today from this Wealth Builders podcast. If you'd like any tools, teachings, or resources mentioned in the podcast, you'll find them online at wealthbuilders.org. Wealth Builders exists to teach you how to build wealth through applied biblical wisdom in your finances, your business, and your investments. Wealth Builders podcast is produced by Celine Williams with music by Audio Jungle and narration by Greg Hunter. Wealth Builders is a nonprofit organization. We depend on your donations to keep this podcast running. Please consider donating to us on wealthbuilders.org.